0: Welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yeider Institute at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. Our guest today is Dr. Renee Bowen, Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Commerce and Diplomacy at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Renee Bowen, thanks so much for being on Trade Matters today. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. So you and your colleague, Professor Lawrence Bros, are doing some really interesting research. I'm very excited to talk with you about this today. There has been a lot of talk in recent years about the decline of the so-called liberal rules-based international order, including the economic institutions that are part of that order, like the World Trade Organization. But you and your colleague are looking at this kind of existing and longstanding problem in some really interesting new ways. And so I want to start by introducing listeners to a paper you've recently published with Dr. Brose called Designing an International Economic Order, a Research Agenda. And to set our listeners up for understanding um, what your paper is all about, I want to mention that what I can see is that the premise of your paper seems to be twofold, with the first one being that The pressures that are being faced by institutions of global economic cooperation are um, weakening those organizations, and that can pose a threat to global prosperity and peace over the long run. And the second premise is that scholars who study international organization have not defined a clear research agenda for responding to the challenges that these organizations face. So I want to start by asking you, why do you think there is a gap in the research agenda in this area when it comes to international economic uh, organizations and what compelled you and Dr. Brose to tackle this subject at this time?
1: Okay, Jill, thank you so much for that introduction of our paper. You're absolutely right that uh, one of the things uh, we identify, it's it's actually a working paper, so um, it will be published hopefully soon. But one of the things we've identified, as you correctly said, is this decline in the rules-based international economic order. And surely we're not the first to make this observation, Uh, and much has been written about it, much has been written about the international organizations themselves, but the gap that we saw uh, was thinking about the design of these organizations and the design of the rules-based international order. And so uh, one way to think of it is uh, social scientists, political scientists, economists, our usual um, approach to research is certainly looking back at what we can learn, but particularly in economics, there's a strand of research that's uh, really interested in design. And so this comes through in uh, thinking about mechanism design. Of course, we always think about welfare economics, And so there's an element of thinking about the institution and the design of institutions that can enhance uh, welfare outcomes. And so this is a little less applied to thinking about international organizations. And I say a little less applied because surely some folks are thinking about this with regard to specific organizations but what we saw as a gap is thinking about the entire uh, system of organizations that were set up let's say in the 1930s and 1940s in in response to lack of cooperation uh, in uh, the 1930s uh, among major economic powers now why was there no research around the design well uh, to be quite frank, it's the institutions uh, that were designed around the 1940s. The Bretton Woods institutions were really um, pretty novel uh, for that time period, and of course they were implemented by practitioners, and not a whole lot of thought was given to thinking about the the research of this of these institutions. And I would say that for the past. Uh, Um, 75 years or so, we've taken these institutions for granted. They, They were working rather well to increase prosperity. And it's only until recently that we've seen their decline that we started to ask the questions about why. And in asking the questions about why, we're able to start uh, looking into the nuance of the the agreements, looking at the actual construction of the agreements, the um, the written text of these legal agreements, uh, and starting to figure out why these cracks are appearing uh, and what we can do to mend these cracks. So that's uh, what we see as the absence in the research. And, you know, of course, this is related to the question of what compelled us uh, to tackle this subject. And I will note that both my co-author Lawrence and I um, have been thinking about these institutions, you know, for decades, really. (laughs) And it's somewhat not until recently that um, I, I would say the, the, the need for this research has kind of come to the fore. Uh, and fortunately, we've been thinking about these things uh, previously, and we've decided to write down our thoughts on a research agenda for this.
0: Okay, so one factor that has been important in underpinning the health of these organizations as they were working for a number of decades, as you mentioned, has been U.S. leadership of and within these organizations. And that leadership, as you note in your paper, used to be sustained by a broad consensus within the United States in support of an open world economy. That consensus is broken down. So in your view, what do you think are the causes and symptoms of that breakdown? And do you think the distinction between the two gets lost sometimes in popular discourse?
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. So uh, let me first start with um, why we think leadership is necessary in this context. So again, economists think of the provision of um, freer markets and whether it's a domestic or global context as a public good. And notably, consistent with economic theory, if we allow these Uh, allow countries to uh, provide their ideal levels of the public good in a unilateral way, then we're going to have under-provision of this public good. So it does require some coordination uh, to get the right level, shall we say, of economic integration. And so where does that coordination come from? Uh, well, it can't come from nowhere. It's unlikely to be organically generated. Surely, if we think about domestic uh, markets and inter- uh, studies of international organization, there are repeated game logics that get us to thinking about how to sustain the cooperation. but there is not a lot of logic in how we arrive at the corporation. And so it's been Rather clear the last 75 years that the United States has played a key role in uh, coordinating. Um, and so that's what we think of as leadership, not so much dictating what should be done, but rather just helping to coordinate this effort. And so Uh, What are the symptoms of the breakdown in this coordination? Well, it will start with the leader having reduced incentives to lead this coordination effort. And why do we think uh, that that's happening in particular in the United States, it's also happening in other Western countries, is the domestic consensus uh, is breaking down uh, for this leadership. Uh, and that can be traced to the increases in inequality that we've seen as a result of this liberalization. And the increases in inequality are having lots of social sort of knock-on effects. Um, clearly, backlash is against immigration, backlash is against uh, anything that looks like uh, the United States is spending more effort on international interests versus domestic interests.
0: Okay, so that that leads into where you chose to focus within your paper. So your paper focuses on populism as one of three major threats that you identify to the international economic order, with the other two being state-controlled economies and national security. So first, I want to ask, can you define populism for our listeners, and then also share why you chose to focus on that threat in particular?
1: Right, uh, another great question. Thank you. So you asked about the definition of populism. Uh, the reality is that there are several definitions and in a sense, no definition at all. That's really satisfying. So in fact, my co-author and I, uh, we actually don't like the word populism, <laughs> which <laughs> is surprising that it shows up in our paper so prominently. But what we what we have in mind when we discuss populism in this paper uh, is that sort of groundswell of uh, ground level backlash against international organizations. So we see it, you know, manifest in choices of political candidates. We see it manifest in uh, various social movements, uh, whether it's the Tea Party uh, or even uh, backlashes against, um, you know, thinking about how we're uh, managing the climate crisis. So this is all coming from voters. This is coming from Everyday folks who are not really uh, seeing the benefits of the international economic order uh, that it was promised, uh, quite frankly. And so we chose to focus on this threat because uh, we thought it was a good place to start. It's certainly, I would say, only one of these three threats um, that deserve lots of attention. But it was a it was a threat that we could get a, a lot of purchase on, given. Uh, the current trends in politics in the United States and Europe, and we could, given or existing knowledge of how the World Trade Organization works, uh, we could uh, sort of trace that source of threat into the actual breakdown of the World Trade Organization and the World Trade Organization's appellate body in particular.
0: Okay, and that's a perfect lead-in to where I want to go next um, with your paper, which is that you do specifically focus on populism in the United States as a threat to the World Trade Organization and specifically the appellate body, which has broken down. That happened about a year ago, as you know, when the U.S. um, refused to allow the appointment of new judges to the appellate body as they were retiring because of frustrations the U.S. has, long-held frustrations um, with that body potentially overreaching its mandate. That's one frustration that's often mentioned the U.S. has there. So Quoting from your paper, you write, quote, it is increasingly clear that the current backlash against globalization is driven by economic grievances that implicate the WTO, unquote. So let's walk through how you arrived at that conclusion. I want to mention that you looked at statistics from the WTO's inception in 1995 through 2016 and found, again, quoting from your paper, Quote, it is inaccurate to say that the WTO is unfair to the United States. By the USTR's own scorekeeping, the U.S. almost always wins the cases it brings against other WTO members, but it loses most of the cases that other members bring against it, unquote. And those are the cases that you focused on, the losses. So when you looked more closely at those cases that the U.S. tends to lose or has tended to lose over time um, through the WTO appellate body, Um, you found they often deal with U.S. trade remedies, which are actions often in the form of additional tariffs that the WTO allows countries to take sometimes to protect domestic industries. So tell us then a little more about how you connected these cases involving U.S. trade remedies at the WTO to economic grievances in the United States that perhaps have gone unaddressed or inadequately addressed. Right,
1: so again, thanks for that great question and and you so eloquently uh, summarized our findings. Let me just start by saying that this is really just one uh, pain point uh, in the WTO that we've identified. Other pain points include uh, issues around intellectual property and other sort of salient issues, including uh, issues around developing countries. Uh, So we decided to hone in on this particular issue of uh, trade remedies. So in fact, this is completely driven by uh, the current USTRs own admission of uh, what he sees as the um, big issues with the WTO. So let me also take a step back And say that prior to, I would say, five years ago, any suggestion that there was anything wrong with the WTO or that the WTO was a failure in any sense uh, would have somewhat been heresy among WTO scholars. Uh, It was heralded as uh, the great um, success story in international organizations, and it really worked as it should. Now, that sort of belied an underlying frustration among some domestic interests in the United States of how uh, the WTO was working um, and how it was intended to work. So speaking of how it was intended to work, trade remedies were definitely put in place by the countries to allow countries to respond to various domestic political pressures that they needed to. And this was intended um, to give the the WTO some wiggle room and allow countries to, uh, to respond as they needed to so that the agreement could be sustained. So that was certainly a good objective. What happened in practice is the wiggle room that was required for the United States uh, was a little bit uh, too much more than some of its trading partners were comfortable with. And when I say wiggle room, um, one of the particular issues was around uh, zeroing. And um, I would say in particular zeroing with respect to the steel industry. Your listeners may or may not know this uh, very uh, sort of detailed part of the WTO that uh, essentially zeroing allows any calculation of trade remedies in the form of anti-dumping duties or countervailing measures to be calculated such that it, it looks larger than it should be. That's it in, in summary. And zeroing is one of the major uh, complaints that uh, WTO uh, members had against uh, the United States trade remedies. And so when uh, the USTR refers to losses, a number of these losses uh, were in fact uh, against zeroing in particular. So what does that mean? That means that the breakdown in the appellate body really can be traced uh, in a large uh, part to this practice of zeroing and the insistence of the United States to engage in zeroing, whereas uh, its trading partners uh, were not happy with this practice. And so you see how the intended wiggle room that was used to help the WTO sustain itself itself uh, was either misconstrued or was, um, I wouldn't say abused, but some might, But it really didn't unfold as some members of the WTO expected uh, leading to the current cracks. Now what does this have to do with uh, domestic interests? Uh, Well naturally uh, the steel industry is a large part of some constituencies, some important constituencies in United States politics and you know, one could say this is just politics, uh, but you know really, this is people. Uh, this is people uh, losing their livelihoods, losing their way of life. Um, and so one can't simply dismiss it as politics. Uh, one really has to sort of dig into the specific grievances of these people and why uh, it really is sort of uh, trickling up, if you would, uh, into uh, a breakdown in the WTO. And I'll point out that the magnitude of trade affected by zeroing um, is actually quite small. Um, And so it's surprising um, that uh, uh, such a small industry uh, would have such a powerful effect on the entire global trading order. And some might say that's somewhat inefficient. Uh, There's a problem with this. My personal interpretation, my co-author may or may not agree, is in fact, it's the power of uh, U.S. democratic institutions. A small group of people uh, can really impact the international organization through how uh, democracy works in this country.
0: That is a perfect place to pick up. That is such a good explanation of, of what you are finding um, through your research. And I'm actually going to shift now to a different but related piece of research that you and Dr. Bros are working on. It seems to me that a real area of innovation in what you're calling for in your research agenda here is, is that you're calling for new scholarship on the WTO crisis that really crosses the international and domestic levels of analysis. You've honed in on people. You've honed in on one industry, you know, sector, and the practice of zeroing and how perhaps It could have an outsized influence on how things unfold at the World Trade Organization. So I want to now mention a paper um, you and Professor Burroughs are working on, which is researching to what extent WTO appellate body rulings matter in domestic US politics, and you have found that they do indeed matter. So tell us a little bit more about how you've set up that particular research question and how you arrived at your, your key finding that these Appellate body losses, the US experiences at the WTO do, how you trace that back to very specific places in the US where you have seen that they actually have um, impacts on voting behavior and electoral outcomes.
1: Great. Um, Thanks so much for that. Yeah, so the paper is joint work with Lawrence Brose, Mark Mundler, who's um, Lawrence is the political scientist, Mark is the economist, and this is truly an interdisciplinary collaboration. Just to tell you a little bit about the result itself and how we how we arrived at it, um, it, you know, it stems directly from this um, research agenda that we laid out. uh, And a large part of this research agenda was simply digging into the weeds, if you could, of uh, U.S. domestic politics and its impact on the WTO and vice versa. So we started with, again, this uh, issue of the uh, appellate body um, and losses in particular from the appellate body since these losses had been identified by the current administration. And in fact, I would say it's not only the current administration. Prior to the current administration under President Obama, there was already growing frustration about the WTO's appellate body. So the the research was born out of that motivation. Uh, And so the question we asked is, can we indeed um, Uh, statistically find this connection. We could certainly tell the anecdotes, uh, but could we find uh, such a connection uh, in a robust statistical way? And so the the design we set up um, was number one to figure out how these appellate body losses uh, translated into employment and industries at the uh, county level throughout the United States. Clearly, these uh, losses affect particular industries. The WTO provides data on the industries uh, um, by HS uh, code category. So that's the harmonized system uh, category. Um, now, part of the challenge is that the industries um, uh, uh, match to harmonized system categories is not how employment data is is, uh, is categorized um, domestically. So. Uh, employment data uh, in the United States uh, is categorized uh, according to Nike's industries. Um, And so uh, the first challenge was to match these HS industries into NIX industries. And once we had HS industries and the actual uh, losses according to HS industries, we could match these into losses, according to Nike's industries. And once we had these losses, according to Nike's industries, we could match these losses into uh, employment shares by industry. And so track the employment uh, that was actually exposed to negative appellate body uh, rulings uh, by the WTO. And of course, once we have this uh, employment exposure measure, we can now look at the connection between this employment exposure measure and various political outcomes. And so one of the political outcomes we look at uh, is the increase in uh, Trump's vote share in the 2016 election relative to Mitt Romney's vote share uh, in the 2012 election and we do find a positive and statistically significant effect there. The other thing we look at is various uh, votes to pursue the WTO. So a little known fact is that every five years, Congress has the opportunity uh, to propose a vote to exit the WTO. Uh, And it's rarely taken up, but there are two occasions in which it actually was taken up. And so we can look at these votes to withdraw from the WTO. And we've looked at these and we show it that in 2005, votes uh, to withdraw from the WTO are statistically correlated with appellate body losses, according to Congressional District. So uh, for us, this was a very long chain of events, and the fact that we did find statistical significance connecting these electoral outcomes, these political outcomes, to appellate body losses validated that this, this research really had
0: some legs. That is a really interesting connection, and so I want to ask you too, so this finding would assume that voters in these areas that were heavily impacted um, by WTO appellate body losses for the U.S. Um, would assume that voters know um, what the appellate body is, what the WTO is, um, and perceive a negative impact from those rulings. How do you test for or measure what voters are perceiving in this way, and whether they're attributing? Economic hardship they might be experiencing to the appellate body itself, or to just this general sort of sense of international trade is unfair or global competition is tough, you know, kind of that sense about things more generally, rather than pointing to the deputy appellate body and being actually aware of what that does, how it's functioning, and how its decisions might be impacting um, the area and the industries where they live.
1: Right. Uh, Yes. So that's, again, an excellent question Um, and and one we struggled with. And so there certainly must be some connection between the general angst about these international organizations that is influencing the result we find. Um, But one thing, uh, as you said, we were concerned about is do these voters, have they even heard of the appellate body? we certainly weren't as aware of the appellate body and we're, we're WTO scholars, uh, so um, one thing we did is started digging into archives of the of media um, in these localities um, that we, we identified as heavily in affected. And the example we like to discuss is um, Brook County, West Virginia, uh, that was heavily uh, impacted by WTO decisions. Uh, And sure enough, if you look at the media accounts in Brook County, West Virginia, whether it's from uh, trade associations, um, the local newspaper, there is a lot of mention of the WTO and the WTO's decision in particular uh, to rule against um, the 2002 steel tariffs that were implemented by the Bush administration uh, so this is really just one anecdote there's uh, a lot more work to do to connect uh, knowledge of the appellate body to voter outcomes um, but this gave us some comfort uh, that uh, there was some acknowledgement of WTO decisions and appellate body decisions even if they couldn't ascribe it to the appellate body in itself it was clear that appellate body losses were affecting these constituents in
0: particular So I do want to switch to um, another aspect of the research agenda that you've identified. What you're working on here that we've just talked about is really interesting, and I'm really looking forward to following um, what you and your colleagues are doing on that front. I do want to ask you to though, you noted in your paper on designing a research agenda that you think that... um, our scholars who research domestic sources of U.S. global leadership should focus more on Congress. Um, there's been more focus, I think, on the presidency um, so far, and you, you have mentioned that perhaps more focus on Congress is needed here, so I'd like to ask you just to tell us a little bit more about the questions you think scholars should be asking about the role of Congress in forging um, U.S. consensus on trade policy.
1: Let me just start from uh, the fact that throughout history, if we look back, Congress has had way more authority in setting the agenda for trade negotiations and setting up uh, what's important in trade negotiations, more than we give it credit for. And so uh, it's really only in recent times that the president, uh, the executive, has had as much leeway as he has had uh, in um, in negotiating trade agreements. And I'll give an example. Uh, An example is Trade Promotion Authority, uh, which Gives the president the ability to negotiate trade agreements um, with only an up or down vote uh, from Congress. Uh, so, this is in, in contrast to Congress being able to sort of tweak various things about the agreement here and there. Um, here, Congress either says yes or no. Um, and trade promotion authority has to be granted by Congress, uh, and it's typically granted for a certain period of time. And, uh, and, and the current trade promotion authority will expire in June of next year, about June of next year. Uh, and so at that moment, Congress has the ability to uh, give back this power to uh, the president and it's, uh, you know, to be de- determined whether or not they will do that. And so why haven't scholars focused on this role of Congress? Well, one simple reason is that it's somewhat difficult. Congress, of course, is made of lots of individual actors all vying for different policies with different interests. So that is already a very difficult problem to address uh, from a research perspective. But another reason is that trade negotiations are typically thought of at the executive level. So President Trump uh, negotiating with President Xi or Boris Johnson um, negotiating with leaders from the EU. And so a lot of times when we think about trade negotiations, we're really sort of focused on the motivations of the executive. What gets obscured is that the motivations of the executive are largely driven by constraints imposed by Congress and different motivations of members of Congress. So again, we're not exactly the first scholars to make this observation, but we are trying to push in the direction of doing that difficult research in thinking about the role of Congress, the motivations of Congress in crafting trade policy and trade po- the trade policy agenda uh, for the United States.
0: Okay. So recognizing that you're at a stage where you are suggesting these questions and, and designing a research agenda on um, in some areas where you think more attention is warranted, um, and also recognizing your early findings when it comes to connecting appellate body rulings to voter outcomes in certain localities and counties in the United States. I want to ask you a bigger picture question. At this stage, what do you think you can say about what should or could be done with the insights that are are gained from research questions like this that you're identifying and, and starting to work on? How might they translate into action items or, or things that could be done differently or new things that need to be done to strengthen this overall consensus um, in the U.S. on trade policy or uh, support for U.S. leadership of these international economic organizations? It's a big question, but what would you? How would you answer that at this stage right. um, in your research?
1: No, it's it's a big question and a really important one. Uh, there's been some talk about uh, post-globalization era. Um, you know, some have gone as far as to say that the World Trade Organization is uh, dead. That's not our perspective. Um, Uh, you know, the World Trade Organization and its predecessor, the GATT, uh, hung around for 75 years. Um, And so there had to have been some elements of these agreements that were working. And, you know, it's one of these things, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What are the elements that worked? What are the elements that didn't work? And so we're focused on the elements that didn't work uh, so that we can improve them. So uh, another point to note is that um, uh, international trade is, is not going anywhere. Um, with advances in various technologies, whether it's shipping technology, um, the ability to work remotely, um, different uh, supply chain uh, innovations, uh, international trade is really not going anywhere. So the idea of a post-global uh, world is um, a bit misplaced in In my view. So the the key is how do we make this uh, global world work for everyone. Um, Now I don't believe things will go back to the way they were in the year 2000 or previous to that, maybe not even in 1994. Um, I really think we're embarking on a new era of globalization uh, and the important thing is to uh, learn from uh, what worked and what didn't work previously uh, to make this new era of globalization work better for everyone. And a key part of uh, understanding how to make it work better for everyone is certainly understanding these uh, different domestic uh, uh, pressures uh, that shape these organizations and shape, not only shape, but uh, have the ability to uh, bring these organizations down, quite frankly. So um, so in that regard, what we're really hoping to do is, uh, as, as our um, research suggests, is really redesign these institutions, really to make it better for everyone um, in terms of uh, peace and prosperity. It's a high ideal, but we do think prosperity is, is a key to um, maintaining peace.
0: Thank you, Renee. This is really interesting and, and I'm really looking forward to following your research as you continue to develop it along with your colleagues. I want to ask you the same last question that I ask every guest on this show and that is about what you're reading lately. Um, what is something you've read recently about trade or global commerce that's been particularly striking to you. Um, thanks for that question. Uh, so.
1: The This may have come up uh, among some of your uh, other guests, but Doug Irwin has a book uh, titled Clashing Over Commerce. Uh, and it's really about the history of US trade policy. Uh, and it traces the importance of Congress throughout history. Uh, it traces the importance of tariff revenue. No one talks about tariff revenue anymore. But I, I'll just preview that uh, some uh, research that I'm working on with Lawrence Bros and Peter Rosendorf brings back this idea of tariff revenue uh, as a a motivator for for different trade policies. And so uh, looking at the history um, tells us that uh, what we're experiencing now is really not that new um, to begin with um, and that there's certainly a role for these global institutions going forward just as there were a hundred years ago or so.
0: Thank you for that. I I have that book as well. It's quite a tome, but very full of good information. So thank you for mentioning that one. Um, um, Professor Renee Bowen, thank you so much for sharing about your research and where your research is going and sharing your insights today on Trade Matters. We really appreciate it and look forward to having you on again sometime. Thank you, Jill, for having me. This was quite a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Alex Boychowski and J.C. Toman for helping produce this podcast. Please subscribe to Trade Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have ideas or topics you would like to hear about on Trade Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at yeiderinstitute at unl.edu, that's Y-E-U-T-T-E-R institute at unl.edu, or follow us on Twitter at yeiterunl. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yader Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.